Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live at the Commercial Real Estate Forum. And our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Tony Quatrin, Vice Chairman, CBRE Capital Markets. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Got it. Vancouver. Vancouver. Yes. So for those Torontonians, you're going to learn something about Vancouver today. You're welcome. Tony, we always start these podcasts with just a bit of a history on your background. And so how did you get into real estate and how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, it, was, it is an interesting story. I don't know how much time you want to waste or uh, put into that. But you know, I was a University of BC graduate. At the time, uh, UBC had the only urban land economics program in the nation. And real estate was really popular. It was the early 80s, just before the big interest rate spike. And everybody's going to real estate. There's 65 of us in our grad class. And at that time, I didn't even know, despite being an urban land grad in a five-year program, kind of a master's program, that this business, this job, this position existed. I didn't know there was commercial real estate salespeople. I didn't know that. I thought I was going to be a developer, like I guess everybody. And then I was going to go on to law school. And I got a job offer because the grads were in high demand. And I took it with a developer, the dream job. And I found out very quickly I did not like it. So I reapplied to law school and a friend of mine was in this business and said, you know, I want to go to San Francisco. They won't let me go till I replace you. Would you come and work here? I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll help you out because I hate what I'm doing. Developers, my clients, they deserve every penny they make. It's a tough business. I said, but I'm going back to law school, but I'll take it for the summer to get you down to San Francisco and then I'll go back to law school. So I went in there, boutique firm called Knowlton Realty at the time. I worked for a senior guy. And I looked around and these guys worked really hard. And, you know, you think salesman, I can't be a salesman. I have this fancy degree, I have a BCom, a master's, you know, I got to do something important. And I realized these guys really knew the knowledge and all my skill sets were required and the numbers and the depth and the talent. It was a very good firm. And I thought, oh, I'm going to try this for one year. I've been going to school for 17 years. I'll try a year of this. And 37 years later, I'm a commercial real estate <laughs> professional. Is your impression of salesman improved over that time? I totally. You know, it was actually at that development company. They took us away for a training session. I find this interesting, I think. And is in Victoria. So we all get over Victoria. There were all the guys up from Winnipeg and Edmonton, Seattle. It was a big company at the time and no longer in existence. And we had this training session. One of the sessions was on sales because, you know, we have projects that were acquiring land. Then we're building them and then we're leasing them. And the leasing, you know, was very the most important part. And it's the part I was kind of gravitating to, although I was more of a numbers guy in those days. And the ferries got stuck in a storm coming home and I didn't know what to do. So I went to the guy that ran the sales thing. He was on the ferry with me. And I said, can I borrow that book you're referring to? And it was a book called How to Master the Art of Professional Selling by Tom Hopkins. And I read that whole book in that evening. And it completely changed my view of what sales was. It changed my view of being a salesperson. And it talked about it being a profession. And it talked about what if you want a doctor or a lawyer, you know, how you go to school for four years in undergrad, then three years as a postgrad, write all these exams, intern for three more, like you're 11, 12 years, and then you go practice medicine, and then you get a one patient, then you get two, and then you have a practice. If you put the same effort and energy and training into selling professionally and being a professional at that business, first of all, it doesn't take nearly as long, and you make way more than any doctor ever hopes to make. And it kind of taught me that, that this is a profession and what words you choose, how you employ them, how you comport yourself, how you generate loyalty and clients. And I just ate it up. And I probably recommend that book to a hundred young salespeople coming through the system since that day. So yeah. Can you that, say the title again? It's called How to Master the Art of Professional Selling. It's by a residential real estate guy out of Phoenix, Tom Hopkins. 
still there. He still does it. He used to have Hopkins boot camps and all. He's kind of the Tony Robbins of that time, but more real estate oriented. But a lot of the motivation, the hard work, the diligence, but really the professionalism. He had that practice, rehearse, drill, you know, the PRD, practice, rehearse, drill, like practice in a mirror, practice your words, say it. And it became clear to me that this sales thing wasn't just something that you came about. You could get good at it. You could get, it could be professional. So I ended up and it was great. And it worked with all my other skills, the numbers, the real estate, the, all the university degree, all the fancy stuff I learned. It tied in quite nicely together. So kind of became a salesman by accident, but I really embraced it. And, uh, so where did you go from there? Well, I, I just worked with this company called Knowlton. And you know, it's funny, the guy that hired me for this shill we were running to, so my buddy could go to San Francisco and I was going to work for four or five months. And I got, did get accepted back to law school. My guy, this guy that hired me, the senior guy, he went to Hong Kong. And he said, now you go to these meetings and you take notes and every day I'll call you from Hong Kong and I'm going to go find some capital in Hong Kong. I'm brand new, right? Really, I've been 10 months out of school. And I go, okay. And he never came back. He just stayed in Hong Kong. <laughs> he, never, he never returned. So, but the guys liked me in the office. And so I got to work with a very senior guy at Knowlton Realty. And he was the top guy in the field at the time. And we sold 1500 West Georgia. We had $30 million deals back in the 80s. It was huge. And I got to learn a lot from him. And I really, really caught into the investment. That's what I wanted to do. And then they made me stick around Vancouver for a couple of years and do leasing because that's how young guys got started. Which I always, I would agree with that if I'm a young guy. Leasing is a great way to cut your teeth. You're doing lots of deals, lots of transactions. They're small, they're quick. You're taking checks, you're writing offers and the deals are happening. Whereas in sales, they're long and they're, you know, they take a long time. And it can be heartbreaking very, too. Well, and a buyer doesn't have to buy. You can wait for the next deal. A tenant has to make a decision. They either have to renew or leave. So you're going to do a deal even if you're not that good, if you can just get yourself in the door. So it's a great way to learn the business. So I did that, very successful, very quickly. Had three major listings downtown as a 27-year-old. And chairman came and asked me to move to Toronto and try and build the company down here because we were very big in the West. We weren't that big out East. So I moved down here, did four years in Toronto, got really keen on the institutional game. Got recruited by Canada Trust, asked me to come back and run their entire BC commercial list operations. Kind of fun. 32 years old. <laughs> Walk back in, there's 45 guys working for you. Most of them, you know, in their 50s. But there was a lot of low-hanging fruit there. They didn't have sales meetings. They, you know, there's a lot of things. They didn't have assistance. They didn't have programs. They, so it was pretty easy to start it. I was there 30 days. They spent a year and a bit recruiting me because I didn't really, I wasn't really comfortable taking on that big role. It's the largest trust company in the country. They had a great residential real estate division, but their commercial division was a bit pokey. And they were going after all these Knowlton guys. And they had a guy from Knowlton in Alberta and a guy from Knowlton in Calgary. And they wanted me to be, come back and do BC. So I did it because there were these friends of mine that I thought were good. But <laughs> 30 days in, we're starting to put in morning meetings and things these guys never heard of. And I get this call from this fellow that, that recruited me. I won't mention his name, but he spent a year recruiting me. Big contract. It's crazy. And uh, for a guy that age, and said, have you heard a rumor that we're being bought by Coldwell Banker? And I go, Peter, I don't think so. I said, you know, this is the largest trust company in Canada. You just spent a year recruiting me. You gave me this enormous contract. If they knew this deal was going to happen that quickly, they would have never let you hire me. I said, I think it's just a rumor. That afternoon, announcement, we've been bought by Coldwell Banker. So I no longer had a job. Uh, my job was taken by the guy that had Coldwell Banker. But he came at me really hard and said, we really want you and gave me a great offer. And I stayed there. And then we became C.B. Richard Ellis through that. So it was kind of fun. So I've been in commercial real estate more or less my whole career. And it's a great business. It's great. So that was, what year was that? But I haven't. So I guess I was 32. So I guess I graduated in 20, so 82. So 86 to 90 was my Toronto. So I went back in 91. So 90, 91. So a tough time to be in commercial real estate. 
Yeah, again, not so bad in Vancouver, you know. I got this great story. I don't know how much time you guys got, but the meltdown came. I don't know. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, do it. Yeah, go for it. We can talk about future stuff. But I was in Toronto and I sold a building to a a very good client, private fellow, still a friend of mine, surprisingly, when you hear the story. I sold this building in Don Mills, if you guys know the real estate market. So it's a suburban market. It wasn't very strong, not very strong today even, but it was really not strong then. And it was a 9% yield, I remember. Sold to him at 89, which is the absolute peak of the Toronto market. And he was pretty happy with it. And at the same time, with some context I had in Vancouver, I sold a building, First City Trust, in Vancouver. Built the same size building. I think the building in Vancouver was $10 million. The building here was $19 million. So two buildings around the same time, different markets through different contexts. I got involved in both those sales. It was great fun. So fast forward about five or six years. To do that deal, the vendor took back a, a VTB of $4 million. You guys are in the lending business. You know all about that. Aetna Life at the time put on a first mortgage of 11, so that's four. And the guy put in five, I guess. That's where we got the 19 million. Well, the time was over. The equity was gone. The vendor walked from the property, the second. And Edna took the property back. And we sold that $19 million building. I didn't, but my a counterpart of mine at CB at the time, I think he sold it for $2 million. So one of the worst real estate stories you could hear, oh. just the timing, buying at the peak and selling in the bottom in the mid-90s. In Vancouver, that building that I sold for $10 million to First Capital, First City Trust, it's not... First Capital, First City Trust. And there was a REIT then, and what it was called. Anyways, they took that property over and took it to the trust company. And we sold that property in Vancouver a year later. A lot of hard work, a lot of deep dividend. We got them 9.8 million. And I said, that's not bad, you know, in this market. And that's the difference between Vancouver and Toronto. The, Back the, then, yeah. Even the now, if there's a, a fall, Vancouver will be more resilient than any market in Canada. It'll come back quicker. And... It's sustainable more than any other market. Why why do you think that is? Primarily because of the, well, we can shift into that. You know, Vancouver, and this is my spiel. I mean, it's, I've been, been, as I say, I've been defending high prices and low yields in Vancouver for 37 years, except for my four years in Toronto. And, you know, we have this natural geography of mountains to the north. They're fully built out. The Pacific Ocean to the west, you can't build out into the ocean. And you've got the U.S. border 15 minutes to the south. So you've got these natural growth restrictions And then over the entire province, you have something called the ALR, which is the Agricultural Land Reserve, and it's run by the commission, the ALC. And their mandate is really simple. It was put in 1972 by the NDP government. So it's been 40, whatever that is, seven years, a successive left and right wing governments, and it's never been touched. And the commission's mandate is if you could ever grow anything edible on it ever again, wheat, a berry, anything, it can never come out of the reserve. And that's it. And that mandate has never changed through successive left and right wing governments over 47 years. So if you fly into Vancouver and you're looking down, you go, oh, look, lots of land down here. It's not land. It's farmland. And it will always be farmland. And today, in this environment of sustainability and climate change and all of that, you're never bringing this out. I try to tell foreign investors that come and meet with us. And we entertain them, by the way, in a foreign investment from somewhere in the world once every couple of weeks. Always, they want to get into Vancouver. And we say, look, this is never coming out. Don't have to worry about a sudden availability of land because... Take one small piece of land, and if it becomes controversial and hits the press, it could topple a government, literally. So no government's going to touch it. So you've got these massive restrictions. And then you've got Vancouver, my entire, again, career. It's been number one, two, three, currently it's six, top 10 cities in the world in which to live. People really like what we have. Oceans, mountains, fresh air, clean, healthy lifestyle. They love the West Coast. So they keep coming. We have between forty and 60,000 people a year. Moving into the Lower Mainland, we call Greater Vancouver the Lower Mainland because the island is the island of the mainland. 
So they want to come there and live there and be there. And they're moving into that limited amount of land space. And at the end of the day, you know, we're all in real estate. Real estate is first and foremost is about people. Either we're building homes for them to live in, offices for them to work in, shopping centers for them to shop in, or industrial buildings for them to transport their goods in. And so it's all about people. So you get all these people and not very much land. It's not a complicated formula. Mm-hmm. I used to say to some of the guys, particularly the Americans, you know, they always think they know everything. And they come in, I'm trying to explain to them, and they're just shaking their head at the yields and rolling their eyes at the IRRs and the returns. And, and I go, listen, guys, here's the bottom line. This is the most liquid market, and you got to pay for liquidity. But the bottom line is, and I kind of got a little of this from old Tom Hopkins. I'll tell you about that if you want. But I said, you have to be consciously incompetent to lose money investing in real estate in Vancouver. You could just be bad and you'll still make money. But you have to actually try. Otherwise, you won't make money in Vancouver because it's that good. And it really has been. And that's proven out. So, and it's those fundamentals that never change. I mean, Do you see the prices continue to appreciate the way they have? Like, let's focus on the single family homes at this point. The one variable that always comes to my mind, and we're kind of seeing it a bit in Toronto now too, is just that the disconnect from income. And just, you know, if a one bedroom condo is selling at 1800 bucks a foot or 2000 bucks a foot, you have to be making $250,000 a year in order to afford that. As you think, kind of see it's been appreciating so rapidly, but it's now it's going to kind of level out and be a little more consistent going forward. What are your thoughts? Well, it has leveled off and that's been a direct result. And I said, you have to be consciously incompetent to lose yeah. money there. It has leveled off. Even then, you wouldn't have necessarily lost money. You might have some issues with liquidity. Or you weren't uh, making as much money as you were before, if you but, think of it that way. Yeah, well, I mean, I always just say, in Vancouver, real estate's a cottage industry. I think everybody's in it. You go to a cocktail party, everybody's talking about the condo they bought, their friend bought, flipped it, this guy, you know, it is part of the culture of Vancouver. You don't get that in Winnipeg. Right? So, yeah. But you had massive government intervention. So that's something that you can never count on, right? That the government was going to come in and intervene in that market in such a profound and directed way attacking the real estate industry with vehemence. I mean, we've had eight new taxes come attacking every aspect of real estate that you can imagine. We've had two vacancy taxes. Like if you come there and, hey, Vancouver's pretty cool. I'm going to buy a one bedroom, rent it out, kind of help pay down the mortgage, going to put in hundred grand and going to make it a little. You got to rent it. You don't rent it, you get a tax. The city charges you one and the province charges you one. You come from a foreign country, you get a 20% foreign tax. So they killed the foreign investments, right? You own a house that your mother and father struggled with their whole lives in the 80s when interest rates were 21%. And they took out a mortgage and they bought a home on the West Side for $350,000 and wrestled with that mortgage and had to work two jobs and bring your grandmother in to babysit you. And they finally got the thing paid off. Well, our governments now decide to say, well, you know, if you got that house now, it's worth $3 million or more. You just got lucky. And now there's a wealth tax on that. So now you got to pay tax, anything over $3 million. And if you can't afford it, no problem. You can defer it so that your state will pay it. So now we have a death tax on real estate. So death tax, vacancy tax, transfer tax, foreign well, investor didn't tax. they just tax, announced tax, a new property tax or tax hikes? I, I know that... That's, that's an income tax. That's, hikes, that's right? income, the property tax hikes. Property yes, tax, yes, property yes, tax, yes, tax hikes. Another, another 9%. Another 9%. Yeah. And when you have massive government intervention like that, designed to attack the real estate industry, it's going to have an effect. But... This is left-leaning government, and they're well-intentioned. I mean, I, you know, my only thing with governments is no government, left or right, well, you have equal ability to take a dollar and turn it into 10 cents. You know, they're not very efficient as yeah, governments. This is the way it is. So I just prefer a government that doesn't take as much because that's less loss, right? So these guys will go away. They'll be taken out of power at some point, and it'll go back the other way. In the meantime, we've got to struggle through these times. But this is a government-imposed thing. This isn't a natural flow of the economy. And it wasn't needed. 
It yeah. wasn't needed. You know, and, and all they've done since they've come to power is attack the demand side. They need to attack the supply side and actually do something positive. And they could solve this housing crisis in a heartbeat. But this government doesn't think like that. Right? Do you want to talk about, I mean, I was in Vancouver in July. It was shortly after the recent municipal election. And it seemed like, you know, there was just a wave of sort of anti-development, anti-real estate uh, councillors that were elected. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of captured that a lot of projects were kind of on pause to see, you know, the, the dust settle and see how these councillors were going to play out and what was going to transpire. And I, I heard some rumors about even post-approval, they were now reneging on what they had approved in North Vancouver. And that it seems like there's been a lot of sort of wait and hold sort of mentality amongst the development community, which means DCs aren't getting paid. And there's not a lot of that revenue that was... I think a lot of revenue that was going to the city copers are no longer coming in. And so how, what's going on now, six months later, is it still kind of a wait and hold kind of yeah. time frame? And, and how do you see it kind of playing itself out? So one of the components, so in our business in Vancouver, because it's such a small economy, we sell all asset classes. So my partner and I and our team of 13, we would do office, industrial, commercial, and retail and multifamily. But we also do land. So the land component, the sales in that component, they're down 90%. So if land isn't trading, right, by volume, right? So if land isn't trading, then nobody's going in for development permits. So there's no new housing coming on. The housing that was sort of through the pipe or almost through the pipe, CACs, whatever, ready to go. Well, because the condo market now has been impacted by this government intervention, this massive government intervention, you can't pre-sell them. So now if you sit on a piece of land that's kind of called entitled, ready to go, you can't get the pre-sales. So you can't build it because the banks will only lend you the money to build it if you've got pre-sales. So the government's killed pre-sales. So now even the stuff entitled is not getting built. So some of that product is getting converted to rental and we're seeing a bit of that happening. So there's some rental buildings being built and there's some of the big REITs and whatnot moving the market, picking up those things on forward sales. So there's a bit of, bit of going on, but the traditional bringing new homes to the market is dead and it's government imposed. And, you know, getting into empower for the government, it was a good soundbite. Let's bring housing prices down. It all sounds good in theory. And it's not a bad policy if you can go about it the right way. But they had no balance. They just attacked one side the of the equation, side, just yeah. the demand side, with vehemence, with anger and impunity and almost insolence. And everybody cheered them. So it was impossible to win that. The so, newspapers love cheering on those kinds of actions. So it'll go the other way. The pendulum will swing the other way and it'll be good again. What I find curious is it's not that there isn't demand for those units, but everyone's just kind of waiting. It's not that there isn't demand for the land to transact, but everyone's just still kind of waiting, right? It's, there isn't a disconnect. And, 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 it isn't there is there's a, a real crisis going on. It's just kind of everybody's just waiting no, to, who's going to catch the knife first? Kind of the, there's no the crisis. Knife thing. There's yeah, no, no it's, crisis. It's interesting, yeah. One thing that people make a mistake of, Vancouver, I don't know how well you know it, but Vancouver itself, I think there's 650,000 people there. It's not very big. Greater Vancouver's two and a half million or whatever it is, close to three million. You know, all the outlying suburbs. But Boundary Road is the boundary between Vancouver and Burnaby, which is our first suburb, right? So here would be Mississauga, so Burnaby. Well, that's really close. I can get the boundary road in 12 minutes from downtown Vancouver. As Bob Rainey, who's one of our great housing gurus in the residential side, said, you know, we don't have a housing crisis. We have a definition of Vancouver prices. Like if Vancouver went out to Langley, it's quite affordable. In London, I have a counterpart in London, his great friend. He commutes over an hour and a half on the train every day to get to his work in the city office. And that's normal. And he has the same job I do, right? So people have a perception. Why do you get to live right downtown? And in, in, in Manhattan, not everybody gets to live in those $10 million condos. You got to commute in from somewhere else. And so I think that that whole thing got blown out of proportion. That These few rich guys buying places in Vancouver, that wasn't the market. And even now, 850 a foot condos in Surrey, they're selling out. They're selling out just fine. And people are living there and getting on the train. So the answers were more infrastructure, better transportation, 
tax incentives to enhance supply. There was lots of good solutions. They just chose one that was popular and got them elected. Uh, they're going to see why it doesn't work. And, uh, it'll, be, it'll be felt for years, though, to work this out of the system. Yeah, we'll need a new government. Yeah. So there's opportunity, right? Prices are going to fall. Things don't trade. Buy low, sell high. It's classic real estate. Yeah. <laughs> are any municipalities there getting it? You see positive Burn- Burnaby's getting it. Yep. yep, I would say Burnaby's getting it. Burnaby has a good policy where they've increased the amount of multifamily rental you can build. And they're coming back on what the CACs they were charging were. That could work. That should lead a lot of new rental product coming to the market, which we're sorely in need of. Every asset class in Vancouver, right? Downtown office is 2.4%. Industrial availability rates, 1.8%. No, it's still got, got great, it's got under, great, under 1%. It's got great economics. Still, I mean, there's right? not that's, a fundamental... It's not a fundamental issue. That's what's interesting about yeah. it. Let's maybe on one more happier note now. Why don't we talk about some of the big transactions that you've partaken in and maybe something that's coming in the future if you can share some of the things that you're working on. Yeah, I always joke, uh, I'm going to write a book and this is going to be a chapter in my book. This is be a chapter in my book. I've had great, uh, my partner, the great opportunity to have done some of the most iconic transactions in that market in our career. You know, I've sold, we worked with Peter Sense on selling the Pacific Center. It's like the largest shopping center, of, you know, tower, office tower project. It's a $4 billion transaction. And we worked on the Hotel Vancouver. It's a classic green roof. You know, we had to sell that. We sold Gross Mountain, which is a local ski hill there with all the gondolas and everything. We sold that. Uh, when you got into real estate, you were imagining you're going to sell a mountain? Just done a deal on St. Paul's Hospital site downtown for, you know. So, we get sold the Bental Center, which is the most iconic downtown well, office. One of the ones I twi- saw. Twice. The debt on the Olympic Village, which was an interesting that. We, one. We negotiated, the, we brokered the debt on the Olympic Village. So, yeah, I mean, it was, that deal didn't go. There would have been no Olympics. Yeah. So, <laughs> we were, you know, literally, I mean, so we were involved in a lot of really big transactions at the forefront. So, those are just here and there. I mean, those are great and it was honored to do them. But first of all, they don't always pay that well when you're working on a big asset that way. They, you know, they kind of really hammer down on the fee. But nice to be involved in them. Nice that they trust you to help them to facilitate that transaction. But our bread and butter has been, you know, the office, industrial and multifamily market and retail for a long time. But no, lots of those, lots of that volume too. It's a big tech sector movement into Vancouver. Do you want to talk about how that's impacting prices and what's going on in the in sort of lower mainland with regards to the tech sector? Yeah. The technology thing, and it's not just Vancouver, it's everywhere. Yeah. You, you go to Portland, you go to, I got some property investments down in Phoenix. It doesn't matter what city you go to, they're tech. Everybody's tech now in every way. It's all tech everywhere, every place. And Vancouver is certainly no exception. We've seen a massive change. I mean, our whole economy, our whole society is going from the industrial age to the information age. And it's happening at a rapid pace. And so these companies are just going gangbusters and growing, you know, apps and better ways to communicate and all the things that they develop, all the wonderful things that are going to be for us going forward. And they're taking space at an alarming rate. I mean, we got 4 million square feet. I think Toronto has 10 under construction in the downtown Vancouver. That's like almost close to 20% of our supply. Maybe 18% and of our it's, supply. And it's been predominantly pre-leased already. Like what's 70% this? is pre-leased. And 70% of that is pure growth, pure demand. Not this tenant A moving to tenant B. Amazon's taken, I think, close to a million and a half square feet. Microsoft just took 600,000 square feet, we're hearing. And Apple's taken, you know. So they're all there. They're all coming. They're all growing. And the rates, I mean, Vancouver, the rates of downtown bigger office buildings, there's an average, and I'm going to get it wrong, but roughly the order of magnitude's about right. For a long time, the average downtown office rents were $24, $25, and then it moved to $28. Well, we're hearing that's average, and that's compendium over A, B, and C class. It's just kind of a number they had. It doesn't mean anything. But I think it was even net of inducements. But anyways, today, some of the brand new buildings high up forward where tenants are trying to lock down space, I'm hearing numbers, it's 70 bucks a foot net, another 25 and off. You're getting to $100 rents. Gross. Wow. What's our time frame are you talking about here? These things are two to three years out, and they're already pre-leasing. 
Now, sometimes you get a pre-leasing, you get a year to go, or, but these things are a long way out and they're getting pre-leased. So that's changing. And I think that's, to come to your tech sector, they don't seem as worried about the prices as our old industries did. Guys in timber, service industry like ourselves, mining, you know, they didn't make a lot of money and the rent mattered. With these tech guys, it doesn't seem like it matters. What matters is a great place to work for your employees, close to a lot of amenities. And so we can move to the suburbs for a third. And they're like, yeah, no, that's three grand an employee. We're fine. You know, we got to be downtown. So that's changing the market, that connection between tech and rent. It's a different connection than the old industries had. We had, I'm going to try, sorry, Frank, Frank Magliocco, I think that's how you say it, from PwC a couple of months ago, talking about real estate trends. And one of the big things that he got from his surveys of real estate executives was that there's a real focus now on, he used this word, customer centricity. And that the, in all sectors, whether it's multifamily or office or, you know, even a little bit industrial, the new developments are really focused on customer experience. And, you know, office is the easiest one where there's rooftop amenities and they've got all sorts of additional, that used to be kind of, you build the office tower, there's a foyer and everybody else, you get your space. But now they're actually putting in a whole bunch of additional, you know, amenities, attractions, things that you wouldn't have historically seen. Are you seeing some of that? And maybe you talk about what your clients are doing and maybe some advice that you're providing. Yeah, I mean, you are seeing that. Everywhere. And it's not just in Vancouver. I mean, it's everywhere. And these, the millennial experience, the experiential real estate and making it a warm environment and having places where people can meet and connect and exchange ideas and having coffee bars and gymnasiums and daycare. And so they can work, you know, basically around the clock, bringing in meals and all of those things are being done. And sure, I don't think we're going to see great innovation in Vancouver, to be honest, because you just don't have to try that hard, right? Yeah, the sure. No, good point. Build really the building good point. and it fills up, right? So <laughs> they so. certainly all pay lip service to it and they are doing things, but I haven't seen anything that just took my breath away yet. For you, on a more personal note, the CBRE office here in Toronto did a major overhaul just a couple of years to get all the bells and whistles. What's the CBRE office like out in Vancouver? The same. I think they were calling it Office 360. We kind of innovated it in North America, started out of our Los Angeles department. And it kind of emanated through us. All the branches, leases came up. They all got moved to new. We have a gorgeous piece of real estate. We look out at the ocean and the water and, you know, kind of acts as a sales tool for where clients come in. They say, this is what you're buying into. I sold that mountain right there. And there's the ocean and all these beautiful buildings. And it works. I mean, it really does bring employee satisfaction. I think it improves productivity. Open cube system. I've sat in a cube pretty much my whole career. and You could never force me back into an office. Do you have a standing desk? I do. Yeah. Either. It, does, it goes up and down, yeah. But well, yeah, so is it just think, because you're engaged in the middle, you get the, the incidental conversations? Is that why you, you don't want to be in the office? I think connectivity is important, right? I'm obviously, I'm old school because I'm old, but you know, everybody's texting and emailing. You know, when I'm, I get my guys, I get over there, go to his office, go sit in his, go see him. And this new era of millennials, they don't get that. They've all connected by phone and by email and by text. And I literally see red when I go, hey, have that guy got back to you yet? And they go, I emailed him. Oh, yeah, forget the emailing. I'm like, go see him. Get him on the phone. What did he say? Read this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read this book. Yeah, yeah. So that's that connectivity is good. So that's why those open offices because you get to talk to them, you get to see what they're doing, you get to hear them on the phone, they get to hear you on the phone, and it's a, there's a learning going on. And a, hey, next time you talk to him, you should think about that or what were you referring to when you said that. You should think of that, and that's a great way for us to train and develop and help each other. So I think that's here to stay. I think people are meant to work together and be open. And you got the little rooms off to the side if you need to have something where no one's supposed to hear, but mostly it's open. And I love it. Yeah. Can we move on to our favorite asset class? Go ahead. Apartments in Vancouver. We love apartments. That market has not seen some of the headwinds that condo has, despite some of the similarities. What do you see for sales activity there, interest, rents? 
the pool for uh, acquiring multifamily is almost endless. It's deep. It's different, varied. We can sell wood frame walk-up, 25 years old, with a value-add component to fancy new concrete high-rise to one to be built down the road for 80 million. Like every asset, every form of rental real estate, multifamily rental is in abundant demand and there's not enough of it and they're trying to build more. So just, it's a really good market. There's lots of debt for it. I always forget where it is, but there's a whole section of the downtown core that's immediately adjacent to the downtown core is a whole apartment it's node. Called, it's called the West End. Thank you, the West End. Not to be confused with you got to be, yeah, be careful. Another, I always say the, yeah. the, to the international investors that come up, I say, now be careful near because that's West Vancouver. Yeah. That's across West. the bridge on the west side. And then there's the west end, which is off the downtown. Then there's the west side, which is Point Grain University. So there's three west. So <laughs> yeah. make sure you get it right. That's why Because they're confused. very different. Yeah. So, I know sure. where they are. I just don't know how to call it. the west end, yeah. The west end. For sure somebody in China yeah. someplace said, wait, I bought where? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong west. <laughs> <laughs> so is there motivation to change that? Because those are a lot of low-rise, a lot of three-story walk-up buildings. To get some more density there, start building up. I mean, I know it's tough to kind of, you know, rental replacement issues and that kind of thing. But when, are you, when seeing, I, are you when seeing transition there? When I was new in the business and looking at the west side and Vancouver, that is actually the one area that made Vancouver very, very unique in the early days when I started there in the 80s, was that you could walk to work and you had all this abundant housing right on the doorsteps of the downtown core. And downtown core is only 15 million feet, but we had that. And that gave back Vancouver downtown some vibrancy and some life and some people and at the time, and I'll get to your question here, at that time, it was considered the most dense urban area in North America, more than New York mm. in that little area, people per square foot or whatever it was. I don't know if that was true, but that's what people said about it. And so it was a very dense area. So it's already kind of done. There's pockets here and there that they've rezoned and you're going to see some, but they don't build rental when they do that. They build condos. So I don't think you're going to see any high-rise rental buildings. So the rental that's there is rental. It's done. If they rezone any sections of it, it'll be done in two. Condos. Condo. Yeah. Interesting. Are you seeing condo developers switching to apartments for <laughs> lack of ability to hit sales marks? Yeah. Or because that, can't, that's common? what we said before. We yeah. can't finance them, right? Yeah. So we can't get them financed. So let's make them to a rental and then we can pre-sell it and you can take that pre-sale to the bank and finance it and get it back. And there's a lot of REITs, as you mentioned, that are out there looking for that sort of merchant developer that they can buy that apartment building as it comes out. So many. And, you know, CMAC has this financing option where you can actually take your term debt without occupancy, right? At occupancy permit or whatever you call it in BC. So yeah. You don't need to lease it up. You yeah, can buy a vacant. You can actually get, get, your, get take your term, get your take, get your term debt. So that's, I mean, the, all the REITs love that aspect because you now you can take two years to lease it up properly. Yeah, you don't have to worry about any interest rate risk. We're a good team in Ottawa. You can get your term debt before you go on the ground. Oh yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty good. Yeah. So there's lots of ways to finance it. Lots of buyers in the take up. And apparent limitless demand. Nothing's limitless, but you know, there's a lot of demand there for it. So the one asset class, let's leave retail alone because I think we all know what that kind of looks like. Let's talk about industrial and just what the impact you're seeing. The rents are already at the highest they are across the country. Is there new development in the industrial space or just so tough because of the lack of land availability? Yeah, there's a lack of land. Uh, they have a thing in industrial, it's called the availability rate. So it's not the vacancy rate. The vacancy rate is quite low. The availability rate is that there's a piece of land ready to be built on and it can be, because you can deliver industrial fairly fast, less than a year. It's called available. So the availability rate, so you can have a piece of dirt that's available. It's 1.8%. So it's the lowest vacancy rate of industrial in North America. And our rental rates, I think the average now is up to just under nine across the whole board. And you go down in markets along the West Coast, port cities like Vancouver is, they're you know, vital for distribution. And you'll see their availability rates triple that, quadruple that, and their rents double ours. So there's a theory that there's still a lot of room to grow in those rents in industrial. So everybody wants beds and sheds, you know, multifamily apartments and industrial. Sheds, as they call that in mm -hmm. Europe, beds and sheds. That's the buzzword for everybody. 
John Love is one of our great ambassadors in our business, one of our mentors. We all look up to John and very iconic in the Canadian industry. And we were meeting with him this trip. And he said, yeah, lots of money, but everybody wants the same thing. <laughs> so that's a bit of a problem. But that's driving up pricing and yields. There's a big belief that industrial growth. In Vancouver, you will see, we are already seeing a, quite a big shift to strata. So strata, you can pay more for the land because you can sell the individual strata units out to users. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty good market for that. So we're going to see a fracturing. Where cap rates don't matter anymore. They're yeah. more about user, yeah. And then that market for strata is almost exclusively user. There's some investor, but not much. And then we're going to see multi-tiered industrial, much like we're seeing in parts of the First city in Canada, I think, is… We've got uh, some already, and, and I think there'll be more of that. And you just mean multiple floors. Like multiple just floor industrial, yeah. yeah, building up for industrial. And you'll see some of that coming. We've already got some already, and it's been pretty successful. So I think you'll see more of that. You know, always find a way. So that's what the industrial… But the, market, the industrial market is very, very good. There's, it's, you know, there's food, a really big driver of needing demand, the, the, the meal kits, and then you know, it's becoming, there's at least 80,000 feet, the food distribution… And then movies. Movies are huge in Vancouver. So mm. those three groups are just anything your hands on industrial, they're taken up. So it's really hard to get your hands on any industrial. We heard one the other day about one of the new tenants we're seeing is this delivery of food is so strong. They're, they're out building restaurant, but they're just building the kitchens yeah, in dark, these industrial dark kitchens, dark kitchens yeah. right? So I haven't seen much of that yet. I okay. think it's there. I think yeah. it, some of it could come. They're trying to figure it out, right? There's this millennial mindset. You know, there's a great quote by Winston Churchill that it's a first we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And he was referring to the rebuilding of the parliament buildings after World War II that were bombed out. And he was down there and he was announcing the new opening of it, I guess. And he gave that quote. At least that's what I read it was about. And what he's referring to, if you think about it, that parliament buildings were built, you know, that there's this side is the Whigs and this side is the Tories and Labour and, and the Conservatives. And there's two sides. And there's the, the they say the, the term toe the line. You could come down to argue your point. You couldn't cross a line. Your toe could go. You know, so that all came from that system. So today, there's still a two-party system in Britain because the building is designed to accommodate a two-party system. So you come to Vancouver and think about that in our translation. You built all these 600 and 500 and 450 square foot units because that made them more affordable because size, you know, was price point. They'd say, well, not that you want two bedrooms and a bathroom and an ensuite. It became to how much can you afford? So now you have all these millennials living in 500 square feet, maybe sharing a bedroom. Well, they're not cooking, man. They're not going home and making a big meal and inviting their friends. They don't have the room. They're mortaring out. So now the industry, the food is trying to cater to that demand. But we created that environment. I've always said that millennials are you know, just young people that are going to grow up and they'll have kids. And they're going to want to move out and get some more space because kids don't real well in 550 feet. But you know, so far that hasn't happened, but I think it will as later goes on. But for now, all the people that are filling these office buildings, all the people working downtown are living in these small areas and they need their food brought in. So there's a big industry there. We haven't figured it out yet. Food it comes it, cold. The kits aren't great. Yeah, no. I, I, I ordered one. As a hobby, I'm a chef. I'm a hobby chef. I cook all the time. So I bought one of these things to see what it was all about. And I got it, by the time I was finished, I had more mess than if I did it from scratch. So yeah. I, they definitely don't have it figured out yet. And it wasn't that good. But that is the trend. So those guys are taking lots of space in industrial. Dark kitchens are an idea to get the food there with better quality. What about groceries? I mean, we're seeing more and more, more grocery delivery. And that's yeah. got to have an impact on the industrial space. All these new apartments, you got to have cold storage locker. You got to have an Amazon box, home delivery. That's huge. It's table stakes now for a new build. If you, yeah, Amazon boxes, and they're going to have, you know, electronic door locks and Alexa lighting. All the, that all will be in the new builds. And if you don't have it, you're making a mistake because that's the, all the millennials are going to want it. They grew up with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. They want it. 
Tony, I appreciate your insight into the Vancouver market. It's, it's one of my favorites. I go there once a month for a reason, but I've not spent 37 years there doing business like you have. So uh, I do appreciate everything you brought to the table today for us. And thanks for taking the time to do this for us. Yeah, my pleasure, gentlemen. Good luck. I want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank Informa for having us here today. And I'm sure as you can hear in the background, this is the sound of the forum ending. So we will also end our podcast here. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.